Section six, chapters nineteen through twenty-two of *The Monk and the Hangman's Daughter*. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. *The Monk and the Hangman's Daughter* by Ambrose Bierce, chapter nineteen. I have been in the presence of the most reverend superior, Father Andreas. Your recovery was miraculous," said he. I wish you to be worthy of such mercies, and to prepare your soul for the great blessing that awaits you. I have therefore, my son, ordained that you leave us for a season, to dwell apart in the solitude of the mountains, for the double purpose of restoring your strength, and affording you an insight into your own heart. Make a severe examination apart from any distractions, and you will perceive, I do not doubt, the gravity of your error. Pray that a divine light may be shed upon your path, that you may walk upright in the service of the Lord, as a true priest and apostle, with immunity from all base passions and earthly desires." I had not the presumption to reply. I submit to the will of His reverence without a murmur, for obedience is a rule of our order. Nor do I fear the wilderness although I have heard that it is infested with wild beasts and evil spirits, our superior is right. The time passed in solitude will be to me a season of probation, purification, and healing, of which I am doubtless in sore need. So far I have progressed in sin only, for in confession I have kept back many things. Not from fear of punishment but because I could not mention the name of the maiden before any other than my holy and blessed Francis, who alone can understand. He looks kindly down upon me from the skies, listening to my sorrow, and whatever of guilt there may be in my compassion for the innocent and persecuted child he willingly overlooks, for the sake of our blessed Redeemer, who also suffered injustice and was acquainted with grief. In the mountains it will be my duty to dig certain roots and send them to the monastery. From such roots as I am instructed to gather, the fathers distill a liquor which has become famous throughout the land, even as far, I have been told, as the great city of Munich. This liquor is so strong and so fiery with spices that after drinking it one feels a burning in his throat, as if he had swallowed a flame from hell. Yet it is held in high esteem everywhere, by reason of its medicinal properties, it being a remedy for many kinds of ills and infirmities. And it is said to be good also for the health of the soul, though I should suppose a godly life might be equally efficacious in places where the liquor cannot be obtained. However this may be, from the sale of the liquor comes the chief revenue of the monastery. The root from which it is chiefly made is that of an alpine plant called gentiana, which grows in great abundance on the sides of the mountains. In the months of July and August the friars dig the roots and dry them by fire in the mountain cabins, and they are then packed and sent to the monastery. The fathers have the sole right to dig the root in this region, and the secret of manufacturing the liquor is jealously guarded. As I am to live in the high country for some time, the superior has directed me to collect the root from time to time, as I have the strength. A boy, a servant in the monastery, is to guide me to my solitary station, carrying up my provisions and returning immediately. He will come once a week to renew my supply of food and take away the roots that I shall have dug. 
No time has been lost in dispatching me on my penitential errand. This very evening I have taken leave of the superior, and, retiring to my cell, have packed my holy books, the Agnes and the Life of St. Franciscus, in a bag. Nor have I forgotten my writing materials with which to continue my diary. These preparations made, I have fortified my soul with prayer, and am ready for any fate, even an encounter with the beasts and demons. Beloved saint, forgive the pain I feel in going away without having seen Benedicta, or even knowing what has become of her since that dreadful day. Thou knowest, O glorious one, and humbly do I confess, that I long to hasten to the Galgenberg, if only to get one glimpse of the hut which holds the fairest and best of her sex. Take me not, holy one, too severely to task, I beseech thee, for the weakness of my erring human heart. End of chapter 19 Chapter 20 As I left the monastery with my young guide, all was quiet within its halls. The Holy Brotherhood slept the sleep of peace, which had so long been denied to me. It was early dawn, and the clouds in the east were beginning to show narrow edges of gold and crimson as we ascended the path leading to the mountain. My guide, with bag upon his shoulder, led, and I followed, with my robe fastened back and a stout stick in my hand. This had a sharp iron point which might be used against wild beasts. My guide was a light-haired, blue-eyed young fellow, with a cheerful and amiable face. He evidently found a keen delight in climbing his native hills toward the high country whither we were bound. He seemed not to feel the weight of the burden that he bore. His gait was light and free, his footing sure. He sprang up the steep and rugged way like a mountain goat. The boy was in high spirits. He told me strange tales of ghosts and goblins, witches and fairies. These last he seemed to be very well acquainted with. He said they appeared in shining garments, with bright hair and beautiful wings, and this description agrees very nearly with what is related of them in books by certain of the fathers. Anyone to whom they take a fancy, says the boy, they are able to keep under their spell and no one can break the enchantment, not even the Holy Virgin. But I judge that this is true of only such as are in sin, and that the pure in heart have nothing to fear from them. We traveled up hill and down, through forests and blooming meadows and across ravines. The mountain streams, hastening down to the valleys, full-banked and noisy, seemed to be relating the wonderful things that they had seen and the strange adventures they had met with on their way. Sometimes the hillsides and the woods resounded with nature's various voices, calling, whispering, sighing, chanting praises to the Lord of all. Now and again we passed a mountaineer's cabin, before which played children, yellow-haired and unkempt. On seeing strangers they ran away. But the women came forward with infants in their arms, and asked for benedictions. They offered us milk, butter, green cheese, and black bread. We frequently found the men seated in front of their huts, carving wood, mostly images of the Saviour upon the cross. These are sent to the city of Munich, where they are offered for sale, bringing, I am told, considerable money and much honor to their pious makers. At last we arrived at the shore of a lake, but a dense frog prevented a clear view of it. 
A clumsy little boat was found moored to the bank. My guide bade me enter it, and presently it seemed as if we were gliding through the sky in the midst of the clouds. I had never before been on the water, and felt a terrible misgiving lest we should capsize and drown. We heard nothing but the sound of the ripples against the sides of the boat. Here and there, as we advanced, some dark object became dimly visible for a moment, then vanished as suddenly as it had appeared, and we seemed gliding again through empty space. As the mist at times lifted a little, I observed great black rocks protruding from the water, and, not far from shore, were lying giant trees half-submerged, with huge limbs that looked like the bones of some monstrous skeleton. The scene was so full of horrors that even the joyous youth was silent now, his watchful eye ever seeking to penetrate the fog in search of new dangers. By all these signs I knew that we were crossing that fearful lake which is haunted by ghosts and demons, and I therefore commended my soul to God. The power of the Lord overcomes all evil. Scarcely had I said my prayer against the spirits of darkness, when suddenly the veil of fog was rent asunder, and like a great rose of fire the sun shone out, clothing the world in garments of color and gold. Before this glorious eye of God the darkness fled and was no more. The dense fog, which had changed to a thin transparent mist, lingered a little on the mountainsides, then vanished quite away. Except in the black clefts of the hills no vestige of it stayed. The lake was as liquid silver, the mountains were gold, bearing forests that were like flames of fire. My heart was filled with wonder and gratitude. As our boat crept on I observed that the lake filled a long narrow basin. On our right the cliffs rose to a great height, their tops covered with pines, but to the left and in front lay a pleasant land, where stood a large building. This was St. Bartholomew the summer residence of his reverence, Superior Andreas. This garden spot was of no great extent. It was shut in on all sides, but that upon which the lake lay, by cliffs that rose a thousand feet into the air. High in the front of this awful wall was set a green meadow, which seemed like a great jewel gleaming upon the gray cloak of the mountain. My guide pointed it out as the only place in all that region where the Edelweiss grew. This, then, was the very place where Benedicta had culled the lovely flowers that she had brought to me during my penance. I gazed upward at that beautiful but terrible spot with feelings that I have no words to express. The youth, his mood sympathetic with the now joyous aspect of nature, shouted and sang but I felt the hot tears rise into my eyes and flow down upon my cheeks, and conceal my face in my cowl. End of chapter 20 Chapter 21 After leaving the boat we climbed the mountain. Dear Lord, nothing comes from thy hand without a purpose and a use, but why thou shouldst have piled up these mountains, and why thou shouldst have covered them with so many stones, is a mystery to me, since I can see no purpose in stones, which are a blessing to neither man nor beast. After hours of climbing we reached a spring where I sat down, faint and footsore and out of breath. As I looked about me 
the scene fully justified all that I had been told of these high solitudes. Wherever I turned my eyes was nothing but gray bare rocks streaked with red and yellow and brown. There were dreary wastes of stones where nothing grew, no single plant nor blade of grass, dreadful abysses filled with ice and glittering snowfields sloping upward till they seemed to touch the sky. Among the rocks I did, however, find a few flowers. It seemed as if the creator of this wild and desolate region had himself found it too horrible, and reaching down to the valleys had gathered a handful of flowers and scattered them in the barren places. These flowers, so distinguished by the divine hand, have bloomed with a celestial beauty that none others know. The boy pointed out the plant whose root I am to dig as well as several strong and wholesome herbs serviceable to man, among them the golden-flowered arnica. After an hour we continued our journey, which we pursued, until I was hardly able to drag my feet along the path. At last we reached a lonely spot surrounded by great black rocks. In the center was a miserable hut of stones, with a low opening in one side for an entrance, and this, the youth told me, was to be my habitation. We entered, and my heart sank to think of dwelling in such a place. There was no furniture of any kind. A wide bench on which was some dry alpine grass was to be my bed. There was a fireplace with some wood for fuel, and a few simple cooking utensils. The boy took up a pan and ran away with it and throwing myself down in front of the hut, I was soon lost in contemplation of the wildness and terror of the place in which I was to prepare my soul for service for the Lord. The boy soon returned, bearing the pan in both hands, and on seeing me he gave a joyful shout, whose echoes sounded like a hundred voices babbling among the rocks on every side. After even so short a period of solitude, I was so happy to see a human face that I came near answering his greeting with unbecoming joy. How then could I hope to sustain a week of isolation in that lonely spot? When the boy placed the pan before me, it was full of milk, and he brought forth from his clothing a pat of yellow butter, prettily adorned with alpine flowers, and a cake of snow-white cheese wrapped in aromatic herbs. The sight delighted me, and I asked him jokingly, Do butter and cheese then grow on stones up here? And have you found a spring of milk? You might accomplish such a miracle, he replied, but I prefer to hasten to the Black Lake and ask this food of the young women who live there. He then got some flour from a kind of pantry in the hut, and, having kindled a fire on the hearth, proceeded to make a cake. Then we are not alone in this wilderness, I said. Tell me, where is that lake on the shore of which these generous people dwell? The Black Lake, he replied, blinking his eyes, which were full of smoke, is behind the Kogel yonder, and the dairy house stands on the edge of the cliff above the water. It is a bad place. The lake reaches clear down to hell, and you can hear, through the fissures of the rocks, the roaring and hissing of the flames, and the groans of the souls and in no other place in all this world are there so many fierce and evil spirits. Beware of it. You might fall ill there in spite of your sanctity. Milk and butter and cheese can be obtained at the green lake lower down. But I will tell the women to send up what you require. They will be glad to oblige you, 
and if you will preach them a sermon every Sunday, they will fight the very devil for you. After our meal, which I thought the sweetest I had ever eaten, the boy stretched himself in the sunshine and straightway fell asleep, snoring so loudly that, tired as I was, I could hardly follow his example. End of chapter 21 Chapter 22 When I awoke, the sun was already behind the mountains, whose tops were fringed with fire. I felt as one in a dream, but was soon recalled to my senses, and made to feel that I was alone in the wilderness by shouts of the young man in the distance. Doubtless he had pitied my condition, for, instead of disturbing me, he had gone away without taking leave, being compelled to reach the dairy on the Green Lake before nightfall. Entering the cabin, I found a fire burning lustily, and a quantity of fuel piled beside it. Nor had the thoughtful youth forgotten to prepare my supper of bread and milk. He had also shaken up the grass on my hard bed, and covered it with a woolen cloth, for which I was truly grateful to him. Refreshed by my long sleep, I remained outside the cabin till late in the evening. I said my prayers in view of the gray rocks beneath the black sky in which the stars blinked merrily. They seemed much more brilliant up here than when seen from the valley, and it was easy to imagine that, standing on the extreme summit, one might touch them with his hands. Many hours of that night I passed under the sky and the stars, examining my conscience and questioning my heart. I felt as if in church kneeling before the altar and feeling the awful presence of the Lord. And at last my soul was filled with a divine peace, and as an innocent child presses its mother's breast, even so I leaned my head upon thine, O nature, mother of us all. End of chapter 22